but nothing that might not be explained if the eyes of our understanding were not feeble and dim, but is not an acknowledgement of our own ignorance the very cornerstone and foundation of all knowledge? Must not many things be taken for granted in the beginning of every science before we can proceed one step towards acquaintance with it? Do we not require our children to learn many things of which they cannot see the meaning at first? And ought we not then to expect to find deep things when we begin studying the Word of God, and yet to believe that if we persevere in reading it, the meaning of many of them will one day be made clear? No doubt we ought so to expect and so to believe. We must read with humility. We must take much untrust. We must believe that what we know not now, we shall know hereafter. Some part in this world and all in the world to come. But I ask that man who has given up reading the Bible because it contains hard things, whether he did not find many things in it easy and plain. I put it to his conscience whether he did not see great landmarks and principles in it all the way through. I ask him whether the things needful to salvation did not stand out boldly before his eyes like the lighthouses on the English headlands from the land's end to the mouth of the chains. What should we think of the captain of a steamer who brought up at night in the entrance of the channel on the plea that he did not know every parish and village and creek along the British coast? Should we not think him a lazy coward when the lights on the lizard and Eddie Stone and the start in Portland and St. Catharines and Beachy Head and Dungeness and the Forelands were shining forth like so many lamps to guide him up to the river. Should we not say, Why did you not steer by the great leading lights? And what ought we to say to the man who gives up reading the Bible because it contains hard things when his own state and the path to heaven and the way to serve God are all written down clearly and unmistakably as with a sunbeam. Surely we ought to tell that man that his objections are no better than lazy excuses and do not deserve to be heard. B. I know well that many raise the objection that thousands read the Bible and are not a whit the better for their reading. And they ask us, when this is the case, what becomes of the Bible's boasted power? I answer that the reason why so many read the Bible without benefit is plain and simple. They do not read it in the right way. There is generally a right way and a wrong way of doing everything in the world. And just as it is with other things, so it is in the matter of reading the Bible. The Bible is not so entirely different from all other books as to make it of no importance in what spirit and manner you read it. It does not do good, as a matter of course, by merely running our eyes over the print 
any more than the sacraments do good by mere virtue of our receiving them. It does not ordinarily do good unless it is read with humility and earnest prayer. The best steam engine that was ever built is useless if a man does not know how to work it. The best sundial that was ever constructed will not tell its owner the time of day if he is so ignorant as to put it up in the shade. Just as it is with that steam engine and that sundial, so it is with the Bible. When men read it without profit, the fault is not in the book, but in themselves. I tell the man who doubts the power of the Bible, because many read it and are no better for the reading, that the abuse of a thing is no argument against the use of it. I tell him boldly that never did man or woman read that book in a childlike, persevering spirit like the Ethiopian eunuch and the Bereans. Acts 8, 28, 17, verse 11, and miss the way to heaven. Yes, many a broken cistern will be exposed to shame in the day of judgment. But there will not rise up one soul who will be able to say that he went thirsting to the Bible and found in it no living water. He searched for truth in the Scriptures and searching did not find it. The words which are spoken of wisdom in the Proverbs are strictly true of the Bible. If thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver, and searchest for her as for hid treasures. Then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs 2, verses 3, 4, and 5. This wonderful book is the subject about which I address the readers of this paper this day. Surely, it is no light matter what you are doing with the Bible. What should you think of the man who, in time of cholera, despised a sure receipt for preserving the health of his body? What must be thought of you if you despise the only sure receipt for the everlasting health of your soul? I charge you, I entreat you, to give an honest answer to my question. What dost thou do with the Bible? Dost thou read it? How readest thou? 6. In the sixth place, the Bible is the only rule by which all questions of doctrine or of duty can be tried. The Lord God knows the weakness and infirmity of our poor fallen understandings. He knows that even after conversion, our perceptions of right and wrong are exceedingly indistinct. He knows how artfully Satan can gild error with an appearance of truth and can dress up wrong with plausible arguments till it looks like right. Knowing all this, he has mercifully provided us with an unerring standard of truth and error, right and wrong, and has taken care to make that standard a written book, even the scripture. No one can look round the world and not see the wisdom of such a provision. 
No one can live long and not find out that he is constantly in need of a counselor and advisor, of a rule of faith and practice on which he can depend. Unless he lives like a beast without a soul and conscience, he will find himself constantly assailed by difficult and puzzling questions. He will be often asking himself, What must I believe? And what must I do? A. The world is full of difficulties about points of doctrine. The house of error lies close alongside the house of truth. The door of one is so like the door of the other that there is continual risk of mistakes. Does a man read or travel much? He will soon find the most opposite opinions prevailing among those who are called Christians. He will discover that different persons give the most different answers to the important question, What shall I do to be saved? The Roman Catholic and the Protestant, the Neologian and the Tractarian, the Mormonite and the Swedenborgian, each and all will assert that he alone has the truth. Each and all will tell him that safety is only to be found in his party. Each and all say, Come with us. All this is puzzling. What shall a man do? Does he settle down quietly in some English or Scotch parish? He will soon find that even in our own land the most conflicting views are held. He will soon discover that there are serious differences among Christians as to the comparative importance of the various parts and articles of the faith. One man thinks of nothing but church government, another of nothing but sacraments, services, and forms, a third of nothing but preaching the gospel. Does he apply to ministers for a solution? He will perhaps find one minister teaching one doctrine and another another. All this is puzzling. What shall a man do? There is only one answer to this question. A man must make the Bible alone his rule. He must receive nothing and believe nothing which is not according to the Word. He must try all religious teaching by one simple test. Does it square with the Bible? What saith the Scripture? I would to God the eyes of the laity of this country were more open on the subject. I would to God they would learn to waste sermons, books, opinions, and ministers in the scales of the Bible and to value all according to their conformity to the Word. I would to God they would see that it matters little who says a thing, whether he be father or reformer, bishop or archbishop, priest or deacon, archdeacon or dean. The only question is, is the thing said scriptural? If it is, it ought to be received and believed. If it is not, it ought to be refused and cast aside. I fear the consequences of that servile acceptance of everything which the parson says, which is so common among many English laymen. I fear lest they be led they know not whither, like the blinded Syrians 
and awake some day to find themselves in the power of Rome. Second Kings 6.20 Oh, that men in England would only remember for what purpose the Bible was given them. I tell English laymen that it is nonsense to say, as some do, that it is presumptuous to judge a minister's teaching by the word when one doctrine is proclaimed in one parish and another in another. People must read and judge for themselves. Both doctrines cannot be right, and both ought to be tried by the word. I charge them above all things never to suppose that any true minister of the gospel will dislike his people measuring all he teaches by the Bible. On the contrary, the more they read the Bible and prove all he says by the Bible, the better he will be pleased. A false minister may say, You have no right to use your private judgment. Leave the Bible to us who are ordained. A true minister will say, Search the Scriptures, and if I do not teach you what is scriptural, do not believe me. A false minister may cry, Hear the church and hear me. A true minister will say, Hear the word of God. B. But the world is not only full of difficulties about points of doctrine, it is equally full of difficulties about points of practice. Every professing Christian who wishes to act conscientiously must know that it is so. The most puzzling questions are continually arising. He is tried on every side by doubts as to the line of duty and can often hardly see what is the right thing to do. He is tried by questions connected with the management of his worldly calling, if he is in business or in trade. He sometimes sees things going on of a very doubtful character, things that can hardly be called fair, straightforward, truthful, and doing as you would be done by. But then everybody in the trade does these things. They have always been done in the most respectable houses. There would be no carrying on a profitable business if they were not done. They are not things distinctly named and prohibited by God. All this is very puzzling. What is a man to do? He is tried by questions about worldly amusements, races and balls and operas and theatres and card parties are all very doubtful methods of spending time. But then he sees numbers of great people taking part in them. Are all these people wrong? Can there really be such mighty harm in these things? All this is very puzzling. What is a man to do? He is tried by questions about the education of his children. He wishes to train them up morally and religiously and to remember their souls. But he is told by many sensible people that young persons will be young, that it does not do to check and restrain them too much, and that he ought to attend pantomimes and children's parties and give children's balls himself. 
he is informed that this nobleman or that lady of rank always does so, and yet they are reckoned religious people. Surely it cannot be wrong. All this is very puzzling. What is he to do? There is only one answer to all these questions. A man must make the Bible his rule of conduct. He must make its leading principles the compass by which he steers his course through life. By the letter or spirit of the Bible, he must test every difficult point and question to the law and to the testimony. What saith the Scripture? He ought to care nothing for what other people may think right. He ought not to set his watch by the clock of his neighbor, but by the sundial of the Word. I charge my readers solemnly to act on the maxim I have just laid down and to adhere to it rigidly all the days of their lives. You will never repent of it. Make it a leading principle never to act contrary to the Word. Care not for the charge of over-strictness and needless precision. Remember, you serve a strict and holy God. Listen not to the common objection that the rule you have laid down is impossible and cannot be observed in such a world as this. Let those who make such an objection speak out plainly and tell us for what purpose the Bible was given to man. Let them remember that by the Bible we shall all be judged at the last day, and let them learn to judge themselves by it here, lest they be judged and condemned by it hereafter. This mighty rule of faith and practice is the book about which I am addressing the readers of this paper this day. Surely it is no light matter what you are doing with the Bible. Surely, when danger is abroad on the right hand and on the left, you should consider what you are doing with the safeguard which God has provided. I charge you, I beseech you, to give an honest answer to my question, What art thou doing with the Bible? Dost thou read it? How readest thou? 7. In the seventh place, the Bible is the book which all true servants of God have always lived on and loved. Every living thing which God creates requires food. The life that God imparts needs sustaining and nourishing. It is so with animal and vegetable life, with birds, beasts, fishes, reptiles, insects, and plants. It is equally so with spiritual life. When the Holy Ghost raises a man from the death of sin and makes him a new creature in Christ Jesus, the new principle in that man's heart requires food, and the only food which will sustain it is the Word of God. There never was a man or woman truly converted from one end of the world to the other who did not love the revealed will of God. Just as a child born into the world desires naturally the milk provided for its nourishment, so does a soul born again desire the sincere milk of the Word. This is a common mark of all the children of God 
They delight in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1 verse 2 Show me a person who despises Bible reading or thinks little of Bible preaching, and I hold it to be a certain fact that he is not yet born again. He may be zealous about forms and ceremonies. He may be diligent in attending sacraments and daily services. But if these things are more precious to him than the Bible, I cannot think he is a converted man. Tell me what the Bible is to a man, and I will generally tell you what he is. This is a pulse to try. This is the barometer to look at if we would know the state of the heart. I had no notion of the Spirit dwelling in a man and not giving clear evidence of His presence, and I believe it to be a signal evidence of the Spirit's presence when the Word is really precious to a man's soul. Love to the Word is one of the characteristics we see in Job. Little as we know of this patriarch and his age, this at least stands out clearly. He says, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job 23.12 Love to the word is a shining feature in the character of David. Mark how it appears all through that wonderful part of Scripture, the hundred and 19th Psalm. He might well say, Oh, how I love thy law. Psalm 119, verse 97. Love to the word is a striking point in the character of St. Paul. What were he and his companions but men mighty in the Scriptures? What were his sermons but expositions and applications of the word? Love to the word appears preeminently and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He read it publicly. He quoted it continually. He expounded it frequently. He advised the Jews to search it. He used it as his weapon to resist the devil. He said repeatedly, The scripture must be fulfilled. Almost the last thing he did was to open the understanding of his disciples that they might understand the scriptures Luke 24:45. I am afraid that man can be no true servant of Christ who has not something of his master's mind and feeling towards the Bible. Love to the Word has been a prominent feature in the history of all the saints of whom we know anything since the days of the Apostles. This is a life which Athanasius and Chrysostom and Augustine followed. This is a compass which kept the Valenses and Albertenses from making shipwreck of the faith. This is the well which was reopened by Wycliffe and Luther after it had been long stopped up. This is the sword with which Latimer and Jewel and Knox won their victories. This is the manner which fed Baxter and Owen and the noble host of the Puritans and made them strong to battle. This is the armory from which Whitfield and Wesley drew their powerful weapons. This is the mine from which Bickersteth and McShane brought forth rich gold. 
differing as these holy men did in some matters, on one point they were all agreed. They all delighted in the Word. Love to the Word is one of the first things that appears in the converted heathen at the various missionary stations throughout the world, in hot climates and in cold, among savage people and among civilized, in New Zealand, in the South Sea Islands, in Africa, in Hindustan. It is always the same. They enjoy hearing it read. They long to be able to read it themselves. They wonder why Christians did not send it to them before. How striking is the picture which Moffat draws of Afrikaner, the fierce South African chieftain, when first brought under the power of the gospel. Often have I seen him, he says, under the shadow of a great rock, nearly the livelong day, eagerly perusing the pages of the Bible. How touching is the expression of a poor converted Negro speaking of the Bible. He said, It is never old and never cold. How affecting was the language of another old Negro when some would have dissuaded him from learning to read because of his great age. No, he said, I will never give it up till I die. It is worth all the labor to be able to read that one verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Love to the Bible is one of the grand points of agreement among all converted men and women in our own land. Episcopalians and Presbyterians, Baptists and Independents, Methodists and Plymouth Brethren all unite in honoring the Bible as soon as they are real Christians. This is the manner which all the tribes of our Israel feed upon and find satisfying food. This is a fountain round which all the various portions of Christ's flock meet together and from which no sheep goes thirsty away. Oh, that believers in this country would learn to cleave more closely to the written word. Oh, that they would see that the more the Bible, and the Bible only, is the substance of men's religion, the more they agree. It is probable there never was an uninspired book more universally admired than Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It is a book which all denominations of Christians delight to honor. It has won praise from all parties. Now, what a striking fact it is that the author was preeminently a man of one book. He had read hardly anything but the Bible. It is a blessed thought that there will be much people in heaven at last, few as the Lord's people undoubtedly are at any one given time or place. Yet all gathered together at last, they will be a multitude that no man can number. Revelation 7, 9, 19, verse 1. They will be of one heart and mind. They will have passed through like experience. They will all have repented, believed, lived holy, prayerful, and humble. 
they will all have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But one thing beside all this they will have in common. They will all love the texts and doctrines of the Bible. The Bible will have been their food and delight in the days of their pilgrimage on earth. And the Bible will be a common subject of joyful meditation and retrospect when they are gathered together in heaven. This book, which all true Christians live upon and love, is the subject about which I am addressing the readers of this paper this day. Surely it is no light matter what you are doing with the Bible. Surely it is a matter for serious inquiry whether you know anything of this love to the Word and have this mark of walking in the footsteps of the flock. Canticles 1 verse 8 I charge you, I entreat you to give me an honest answer. What art thou doing with the Bible? Dost thou read it? How readest thou? 8 In the last place, the Bible is the only book which can comfort a man in the last hours of his life. Death is an event which in all probability is before us all. There is no avoiding it. It is the river which each of us must cross. I who write and you who read have each one day to die. It is good to remember this. We are all sadly apt to put away the subject from us. Each man thinks each man mortal but himself. I want everyone to do his duty in life, but I also want everyone to think of death. I want everyone to know how to live, but I also want everyone to know how to die. Death is a solemn event to all. It is the winding up of all earthly plans and expectations. It is the separation from all we have loved and lived with. It is often accompanied by much bodily pain and distress. It brings us to the grave, the worm, and corruption. It opens the door to judgment and eternity, to heaven or to hell. It is an event after which there is no change or space for repentance. Other mistakes may be corrected or retrieved, but not a mistake on our deathbeds. As the tree falls, there it must lie. No conversion in the coffin, no new birth after we have ceased to breathe, and death is before us all. It may be close at hand. The time of our departure is quite uncertain. But sooner or later we must each lie down alone and die. All these are serious considerations. Death is a solemn event even to the believer in Christ. For him, no doubt, the sting of death is taken away. 1 Corinthians 15.55 Death has become one of his privileges, for he is Christ's. Living or dying, he is the Lord's. If he lives, Christ lives in him. And if he dies, he goes to live with Christ. To him to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 Death 
frees him from many trials, from a weak body, a corrupt heart, a tempting devil, and an ensnaring or persecuting world. Death admits him to the enjoyment of many blessings. He rests from his labors. The hope of a joyful resurrection is changed into a certainty. He has the company of holy, redeemed spirits. He is with Christ. All this is true, and yet even to a believer, death is a solemn thing. Flesh and blood naturally shrink from it. To part from all we love is a wrench and trial to the feelings. The world we go to is a world unknown, even though it is our home. Friendly and harmless as death is to a believer, it is not an event to be treated lightly. It always must be a very solemn thing. It becomes every thoughtful and sensible man to consider calmly how he is going to meet death. Gird up your loins like a man and look the subject in the face. Listen to me while I tell you a few things about the end to which we are coming. The good things of the world cannot comfort a man when he draws near death. All the gold of California and Australia will not provide light for the dark valley. Money can buy the best medical advice and attendance for a man's body, but money cannot buy peace for his conscience, heart, and soul. Relatives, loved friends, and servants cannot comfort a man when he draws near death. They may minister affectionately to his bodily wants. They may watch by his bedside tenderly and anticipate his every wish. They may smooth down his dying pillow and support his sinking frame in their arms, but they cannot minister to a mind deceased. They cannot stop the achings of a troubled heart. They cannot screen an uneasy conscience from the eye of God. The pleasures of the world cannot comfort a man when he draws near death. The brilliant ballroom, the merry dance, the midnight revel, the party to Epsom races, the card table, the box at the opera, the voices of singing men and singing women, all these are at length distasteful things. To hear of hunting and shooting engagements gives him no pleasure. To be invited to feasts and regattas and fancy fairs gives him no ease. He cannot hide from himself that these are hollow, empty, powerless things. They jar upon the ear of his conscience. They are out of harmony with his condition. They cannot stop one gap in his heart when the last enemy is coming in like a flood. They cannot make him calm in the prospect of meeting a holy God. Books and newspapers cannot comfort a man when he draws near death. The most brilliant writings of Macaulay and Dickens will pall on his ear. The most able article in the Times will fail to interest him. The Edinburgh and Quarterly Reviews will give him no pleasure. Punch and the Illustrated News and the last new novel will lie unopened and unheeded. 
their time will be past. Their vocation will be gone. Whatever they may be in health, they are useless in the hour of death. There is but one fountain of comfort for a man drawing near to his end, and that is the Bible. Chapters out of the Bible, texts out of the Bible, statements of truth taken out of the Bible, books containing matter drawn from the Bible, these are a man's only chance of comfort when he comes to die. I do not at all say that the Bible will do good as a matter of course to a dying man, if he has not valued it before. I know unhappily too much of deathbeds to say that. I do not say whether it is probable that he who has been unbelieving and neglectful of the Bible in life will at once believe and get comfort from it in death. But I do say positively that no dying man will ever get real comfort except from the contents of the Word of God. All comfort from any other source is a house built upon sand. I lay this down as a rule of universal application. I make no exception in favor of any class on earth. Kings and poor men, learned and unlearned, all are on a level in this matter. There is not a jot of real consolation for any dying man unless he gets it from the Bible. Chapters, passages, texts, promises and doctrines of Scripture heard, received, believed and rested on. These are the only comforters I dare promise to anyone when he leaves the world. Taking the sacrament will do a man no more good than the popish extreme unction so long as the word is not received and believed. Priestly absolution will no more ease the conscience than the incantations of a heathen magician if the poor dying sinner does not receive and believe Bible truth. I tell everyone who reads this paper that although men may seem to get on comfortably without the Bible while they live, they may be sure that without the Bible they cannot comfortably die. It was a true confession of the learned Selden. There is no book upon which we can rest in a dying moment but the Bible. Unquote. I might easily confirm all I have just said by examples and illustrations. I might show you the deathbeds of men who have affected to despise the Bible. I might tell you of Voltaire and Paine, the famous infidels, died in misery, bitterness, rage, fear, and despair. I might show you the happy deathbeds of those who have loved the Bible and believed it, and the blessed effect the sight of their deathbeds had on others. Cecil, a minister whose praise ought to be in all churches, says, I shall never forget standing by the bedside of my dying mother. Are you afraid to die, I asked. No, she replied. But why does the uncertainty of another state give you no concern? Because God has said, Fear not, 
when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. Isaiah 43, verse 2 I might easily multiply illustrations of this kind, but I think it better to conclude this part of my subject by giving the result of my own observations as a minister. I have seen not a few dying persons in my time. I have seen great varieties of manner and deportment among them. I have seen some die sullen, silent, and comfortless. I have seen others die ignorant, unconcerned, and apparently without much fear. I have seen some die so wearied out with long illness that they were quite willing to depart, and yet they did not seem to me at all in a fit state to go before God. I have seen others die with professions of hope and trust in God without leaving satisfactory evidences that they were on the rock. I have seen others die who, I believe, were in Christ and safe, and yet they never seemed to enjoy much sensible comfort. I have seen some few dying in the full assurance of hope, and like bunions stand fast, giving glorious testimony to Christ's faithfulness even in the river. But one thing I have never seen, I never saw anyone enjoy what I should call real, solid, calm, reasonable peace on his deathbed who did not draw his peace from the Bible. And this I am bold to say, that the man who thinks to go to his deathbed without having the Bible for his comforter, his companion, and his friend is one of the greatest madmen in the world. There are no comforts for the soul but Bible comforts, and he who has not got hold of these has got hold of nothing at all unless it be a broken reed. The only comforter for a deathbed is the book about which I address the readers of this paper this day. Surely it is no light matter whether you read that book or not. Surely a dying man in a dying world should seriously consider whether he has got anything to comfort him when his turn comes to die. I charge you, I entreat you, for the last time, to give an honest answer to my question, what art thou doing with the Bible? Dost thou read it? How readest thou? I have now given the reasons why I press on every reader the duty and importance of reading the Bible. I have shown that no book is written in such a manner as the Bible. That knowledge of the Bible is absolutely necessary to salvation. That no book contains such matter that no book has done so much for the world generally, that no book can do so much for everyone who reads it aright, that this book is the only rule of faith and practice, that it is and always has been the food of all true servants of God, and that it is the only book which can comfort men when they die. All these are ancient things I do not pretend to tell anything new. I have 
only gathered together old truths and tried to mould them into a new shape. Let me finish all by addressing a few plain words to the conscience of every class of readers. One, this paper may fall into the hands of some who can read but never do read the Bible at all. Are you one of them? If you are, I have something to say to you. I cannot comfort you in your present state of mind. It would be mockery and deceit to do so. I cannot speak to you of peace and heaven while you treat the Bible as you do. You are in danger of losing your soul. You are in danger because your neglected Bible is a plain evidence that you do not love God. The health of a man's body may generally be known by his appetite. The health of a man's soul may be known by his treatment of the Bible. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.